Welcome back to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. It's great to have you. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Good to have you. And Dave, let's get to it. All right, Dave. So President Biden recently said that he's going to add even more drilling restrictions in Alaska. And in my view, and this is the numbers speaking, it's not even just my view, it's the numbers. This benefits OPEC and Russia and our foreign adversaries who are going to enrich themselves on even more oil while constraining our own oil resources and hurting American families. So don't you think that's counterproductive when we are trying to fund this war against Russia? Um, and then there's also the fact that our NATO allies are not paying their fair share for defense spending. So my question to you is, given those factors and, and other factors as well, do you support the continued unrestrained, unrestricted support of, of Ukraine? Or do you think we should have some more actual like demands and requirements because you have these senators on Capitol Hill saying we're not going to do a rubber stamp on this. What's your take on this? Boy, well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of questions in there. So let me just address the energy one first. I said before on this show, and I've said to anyone who will listen, one of the great mysteries to me is that we seem to have one party that's against fossil fuels and one party that's against alternative fuels. We should go full speed ahead on both. The bottom line is for the next 15 or 20 years, we're going to be getting at least 80% of our energy from fossil fuels. And the AOCs and the environmentalists of the world can, can curse me out, but it's a fact. Secondly, uh, I don't understand why there's been inconsistency from the Biden administration. They were against it, then they're for it. Now they seem to be putting restrictions on. We need a consistent energy policy. And frankly, we need to increase our relations, improve our relations with Saudi Arabia. Whatever we think of MBS, he's going to be there for 40 years. He's wildly popular. And if we had a better relationship with Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't be cutting back production. They would be increasing it. So let me just say that. That's now on to your question with Ukraine. I think that, yes, the money needs to be accounted for. But the thing we have to keep in mind is the cost of failing in Ukraine are far higher than the cost of succeeding. Because if Putin is able to take Ukraine, and again, even if he were able to say, take over Kyiv, the problem is that there's such a thirst for democracy in the country that the citizens would never live under that rule. And so there'd be constant uh, local skirmishes and civil wars and all kinds of stuff going on. So it, it, it wouldn't work. But having said that, if Putin can succeed in Ukraine, Poland, or, or the Baltics, or some NATO country is going to be next, and then we really are talking about a lot of money. So I think we should encourage Ukraine to continue doing, we should make sure that people like Elon Musk don't cut off Starlink. And uh, But yes, uh, we need to keep putting money in because and supporting them because the cost of failure is far greater. What say you? Well, I mean, what about NATO? Because you have, I, I checked, um, and I believe it's only 11 out of 31 countries who are projected this year to meet their NATO 2% GDP spend. We are one of them. Canada is not, France is not, Italy is not, very large countries as well as some smaller countries. I, I mean, don't, don't you think that that is like kind of the bare minimum that the people who's in the backyard um, is Ukraine should should be doing more. I mean, shouldn't they be taking more responsibility? I guess that's a big question that I have. And then and then I also recently heard a, a friend of mine is a reporter for New York Post, and he had a scoop about how there was a bunch of Wall Street American bankers and billionaires 
meeting with the Ukrainian president to talk about how to rebuild Ukraine. And that, you know, to the to the, the Republican conservative base and or just anybody who cares about America and heck, even the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, why don't they put their money and resources behind stopping this flow of illegal immigration and controlling our own border uh, instead of focusing so much overseas? I, I, I totally agree. And we've talked about this before, too. Like, I'm very supportive of the cause for the people of Ukraine. I, I very much am. Um, I, but I think it's disappointing how the offensive hasn't gone as as I mean, they're brave and incredible people. But I do think that we have to ask ourselves, why aren't our allies doing more? And are we being used and exploited? And are the American people and the American taxpayers being exploited by not doing enough for our own self at home? Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, there are countries, yes, countries are paying more. It's taking time to ramp up. But look what Japan is spending on their defense. They're spending a lot more than what Germany has up their ante a lot. And you also have to remember, Carrie, there are a lot of ways that don't involve just direct money. Look at all the refugees that Poland's taken in. I mean, that's been a huge expense for them. So I think a lot of these countries are, are pulling their weight. But I would just say, if you want it, the best thing for Ukraine is to make sure that Donald Trump is not elected president, because he has said, he has said point blank that, you know, he would say that he would end the war in 24 hours, which is absurd. But he's also said, oh, I would just give Putin this territory. He said blatantly before that he was, he doesn't like NATO. He was going to disband NATO. So think of, put it, put yourself in Putin's shoes, right? This is a waiting game. His strategy is that the attention span of the West is limited and that interest is going to decline, which is true. And that's true for any almost any cause like this. But even more so, ooh, if only Donald Trump can become president again, then I'll be fine because he's never criticized me, criticized me. And I'm I'm you know, he's my puppet. So that is the best way we can assure the success of Ukraine is to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. You know, we're going to disagree on that. I know. <laughs> I believe the Ukrainian invasion would not have occurred if, if Donald Trump was still president. I do believe that for numerous reasons. One is the disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan. That projected incredible weakness, incredible negligence, $80 billion of equipment lost in Afghanistan. How about we, we resurrect some of that $80 billion to give that to Ukraine? So, so you know who that telegraphed? I'm a weak country and I'm a weak leader. Putin saw that. And, and and Donald Trump didn't allow that to happen. He could have pulled out of Ukraine at any point. He wanted to, but he didn't because he knew the conditions had not been met. So Joe Biden's weakness in Ukraine in um, Afghanistan incentivized him. And then there's also the disastrous energy policy on Nord Stream 2 pipeline domestically. Again, enriching and, and enlarging the pockets of, of Russia. I, you know, Biden has done some good on the sanctions. I give him that credit. See, Dave, I'm giving credit. But to me, it's too little, too late, and it's reactionary instead of proactive. And actually, as you said, acknowledging the reality of where the petro economy is today, not where some pipe dream where you want it to be in 80 years. We have to play with the map today. And I believe if Donald Trump had been president, this never would have happened. First of all, the uh, the you talk to any major energy company and they'll tell you it's going to be between 2040 and 2050 when they'll be able to go all alternatives. They want to do it. The market is driving it there uh, so that it's not going to be 80 years. Uh, we're, we're, I'd say, again, I think we're 15 to 20 years away. I think that's reasonable, maybe 25 max. But as far as, uh, well, as you know, I'm not going to 
defend the president's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think it was barely poorly, poorly handled. We should have kept some troops in the Bagram Air Base, if you just look at the strategic value of it. So we agree on that. But where we strongly disagree is that the reason Putin didn't invade Ukraine when Trump was president was because he didn't have to, because Trump was on his way to disbanding NATO. So that's Putin's goal. So, you know, Putin's puppet was doing his work for him. And as, uh, okay, and as far as, uh, uh, as far as Putin's plans go, you know, you, you, you have to remember that he's always thinking, I want to reunite the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that ever happened. So he's thinking it's going to be Ukraine first, then the, then, then the Baltics. And lest, lest we not forget, Donald Trump, uh, started negotiating the surrender by letting 5,000 of the most heinous criminals out of jail. And so, again, uh, this is something that Trump started. It's like the border crisis. Trump started it and Biden made it worse. But in any case, my question to you is, what is going on with this impeachment inquiry? Kevin, oh, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, said we would have a vote, but then he realized he didn't have the votes, so we're not going to have a vote. And this is the first time, whatever you think of the two Trump impeachments, there was a clear case to be made for an impeachable offenses. This is, there's even James Comer, head of the oversight committee, when he was asked, well, are we going to find some evidence or a smoking gun? Well, I sure hope so. Well, we have, a, we have this witness. What happened? Oh, the witness vanished. We, we can't seem to find him. I mean, the whole thing is, is just a display, I think, of isn't it just a display of Kevin McCarthy's weakness as speaker and his, and his desire to keep his job and appease the extreme wing of his party? Isn't that all it is, Carrie? Isn't there not any real evidence here? Well, I, I think there is um, a lot of evidence that we should con continue looking at. I, I do agree it is premature to go straight for impeachment. I think there is a lot of uh, possible angles that continue to need to be investigated. Um, I do think the Donald Trump, especially the first impeachment, but both the impeachments were very political in nature. Um, and, you know, when, when the, they were planning the first one, the Democrats, I was like, don't do this. People don't need this in our country politically. Um, and I, I think, though, with Joe Biden, like he the media gives Joe Biden such a free pass that uh, that's part of why so many conservatives are so angry. But if you just look at the evidence, I mean, that the House Oversight Committee, you know, Devin Archer's testimony was was pretty damning. I mean, he he said he testified that the Joe Biden brand, the brand was used to send signals of power, access and influence to enrich the Biden family um, from foreign source, sources. Um, and Devin Archer testified um, that at least 20 times while he was vice president, he spoke on the speakerphone with Hunter Biden's foreign business associates. And the White House tells us they were talking about the weather. I mean, my goodness, like if the tables were turned and, and that's, this was Donald Trump Jr., and do you really believe that they would be talking about the weather if that was his father? No, I mean, you, you can't sell me the Brooklyn Bridge for a buck. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not gonna fall for that. And there's also the fact in February, 2014, then Vice President Joe Biden, he dined with these oligarchs from Russia and Kazakhstan, who then funneled millions of dollars to Hunter Biden and his business associates. There's also, and then April 2015, Biden dined with Hunter Biden's foreign business associates, again, including the Ukrainian Burisma executive, uh, Vadim Pozarsky. Um, and then Burisma at the time was then being investigated by the Ukrainian prosecutor. So, uh, you know, and, and then he, and oh, Joe, 
while Vice President, while Vice President Joe Biden had coffee with Hunter Biden's Chinese business associate Jonathan Lee of BHR in Beijing, and he wrote a college letter recommendation for his daughter. Uh, I could go on and on if you want me to, but in 2015, then Vice President Biden also hunted, hosted Hunter Biden and Devin Archer and other business associates at the official resident of residence of the Vice President. The topic was the filling the top seat at the UN. The Kazakhstani government official who wanted the UN position attended both dinners at Cafe Milano with then Vice President Biden. So the committee has actually put forth a lot of evidence of how Joe Biden has used the brand to enrich his son's business associates. So I, I actually do think there is a lot there. Um, I do agree though, that it seems like it's not a very organized process. And it does seem that McCarthy is kind of being dragged and he should be leading and ahead of it. And I think he should be focused on the shutdown right now. That's where I think he should be focused. I agree with you, Dave, on that. But I do think that this is something they should continue looking at. Well, first of all, let's not even get started with the false equivalencies about grift. I mean, look at Jared Kushner's Saudi deal. It's despicable. But having said that, Devin Archer's testimony, I thought, was was very helpful for Biden because he even said there is no direct evidence that Joe Biden got a direct benefit from anything that Hunter Biden did. And that's what they were looking for in his testimony. And it wasn't there. And the bottom line is, yes, we've been through this before. Hunter Biden is pathetic. He's a drug addict. He used the name. But again, it's there is a big difference between having your dad say hi to prove, oh, look, I've got I'm the vice president's son and Joe Biden directly benefiting. There is no evidence that Joe Biden to this point directly benefited. There's a lot of evidence that Hunter Biden behaved despicably. And I am no defender of Hunter Biden. You know that. We've been through this on this show many times. But the bottom line is that they don't have a smoking gun and they know it. And again, if I were a political strategist, I would be advising against this because Joe Biden needs a lifeline right now, frankly. He has not had a very good couple of weeks. And this is exactly the kind of lifeline that he needs because you can debate you know, how what Donald Trump did, but there's no question the two things he did were impeachable offense, were impeachable offenses, particularly January 6th. I know you still don't even think Trump is, is responsible for January 6th in any way. We don't have to get back into that again. But the bottom line is that we agree that this is being done more to appease the right wing of his party than it is because there's actual evidence. And again, I would caution the Republicans, history has not been kind. Look at 1998 when they did it to, to Bill Clinton. Uh, it is not a good sign, and it may be just exactly what Joe Biden needs. Look, I, I, number one, yes, we agree on Hunter Biden. Um, and and I've said this before, too. He is mentally ill. Like, drug addiction is a mental illness. He needs to be treated for that. But And so I have compassion for him on that. However, the thing about uh, helping an addict, you can't enable them. And so when, for example, on The View, they said, oh, this is just the love of a father for the son. It's criminal. It's, it's more than that. It's criminal if you're using influence and the official acts, an official act, that's the, the big question here, an official act to pressure the firing of a prosecutor who was investigating the son, that the, the company that your son is on the board of. That, that Burisma, I mean, that, that, that to me is deeply you know, impeachable if that's true. If he used, the vice president used his official act 
to pressure the firing of uh, the, 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 the whether this prosecutor was corrupt or not, he should have recused himself. Joe Biden should have recused himself. So I believe there's evidence that that, I mean, it, look, it needs to be looked into further, but it could have been an official act on behalf of his son. Uh, and then there's also the fact that there was a 2019 text message between Hunter Biden to his own daughter, Naomi. And he said, I hope, uh, he said, I, I, he said, unlike, he said, don't worry, unlike pop, I won't make you give me half of your salary. That's what Hunter Biden said to his daughter, Naomi, in a text message. He said that my father forces me to fork over half of my salary. So how can you defend that text message, Dave? I, I, I you know, again, you're, you're getting so far, so far in, into the weeds here. But again, as I said, look, I'm not defending Hunter's by Hunter Biden's behavior. I think it I think the uh, Biden overall, he's been in office for 50 years and he's a guy that doesn't have a lot of money. I mean, he would take the train to work every day for crying or every time uh, he doesn't live an opulent life. You, you don't have the grift in spades that you have with the Trump family. And so, uh, again, but as you said, if that's true, and that's what I keep hearing from you and a lot of anti-Biden people. Well, if this is true, if that's true, good. Well, until you prove it, there's still no smoking gun. But anyway, what's your what's your next question? Yeah, we can keep going on whether it's okay to tell your daughter that uh, she can't, you know, he won't. Anyway, I think I don't think that's going down a rabbit hole. I think that's pretty damning as far as I, to me, that's evidence. But yes. Anyway, my next question is about the student loan plan. So. I want to talk about the student loan plan with Joe Biden because from my perspective and his people keep bringing it up. So I did congressional testimony this week for an economic subcommittee on the oversight committee. And one of the things the Democrats kept bringing up was student loans and how Joe Biden's forgiveness plan is amazing. But I made the argument in the testimony that this does nothing to actually solve the underlying inflation. It doesn't actually go to the root of the problem, which is the universities. It's paying, it's, it's basically the universities hold the students hostage and then the federal government pays the ransom. So why can't Joe Biden actually hold the universities accountable? Is it because he's in their pocket because they're all liberal donors because they, you know, they, they, they entrench the liberal ideology? Is that why? Why doesn't he have to actually go after the universities also for failing to warn the students and, and even put their lending policies based on the value of the degree? If your degree is worthless, you should pay more, I believe. Well, again, you and I have agreed about the lack of constitutionality with the whole student loan forgiveness thing that he tried to pull. So putting that aside, uh, universities have, are, are very independent. But I agree that, you know, as Warren Buffett says, it's always a lot easier to spend other people's money. Right. And so when you had all these student loans coming in, unfortunately, what happened was that a lot of these universities, instead of actually spending it on things that would help the students, they spent it on bloated administrations and increased increased staff. I mean, Yale, if you can believe this, has over 200 people, I believe, working for the university under diversity. Now, I think diversity is very important, but do we need that many people working? No. So I think that uh, a lot, and universities, again, like many organizations, you could say, why, why haven't they cut money or why haven't they gotten on the teachers unions? You can go to Republicans and say so many causes. You know why? Why is the energy, the fossil fuel industry, still getting its way with the Repu with the Re with the Republican Party and so many other things? But again, it's it's money, money, money. But I do think that you are seeing some some pushback, particularly with inflation. I know some people that are 
pushing back on a lot of these salaries or these tuitions and costs. And I think what's happening is you're seeing a lot of people go more to community colleges and more local colleges. And I think, folks, what's important is not that you go to the best college. What's important is that you go to the best college for you. And so I've said this before, I think we should bring back vocational training. I don't think people even need to go to college. I know certainly where I live in Northern California, you can make a fortune as an electrician or as a plumber. And that demand's not going away. I don't care how techy things get. Toilets are still going to clog. Sewer lines are still going to be blocked. Houses are still going to need to be wired. So again, I think there's been so much of an emphasis on it. You have to have a college degree from a good college. You have to have a college degree from a good college. And that has forced the market up and allowed these, these schools to charge, frankly, much more than they're worth. And just look at the rate of inflation. It's literally one third the rate of college tuition, if you look at the increases over the last 20 years. So I think we're on the same page with this, but I think that's another blessing of a lot of this, of, a, of, of, a, of the student loan thing is that it's, it's going to focus more attention on this because I, I agree it really is a problem. And uh, obviously people need to be educated, but again, it doesn't have to be a college degree. You can make a heck of a lot of money working construction. There aren't, by the way, there aren't enough contractors either. Contractors, you can make a very good living. And that doesn't something where you don't need to go to college. But my question for you is that uh, Congressman Lawler from New York had said, this is stupidity. If you elect clowns, you're going to have a clown show. Now, this is a someone who comes from one of the 19 districts that Biden won. And I think Biden won Lawler's district by eight or 10 points. So my question for you is, what can we do to 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 make the House functional? I think right now it's so dysfunctional that you're looking at perhaps the Democrats regaining the House, but perhaps losing the Senate in 24. Mm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that, that would be an interesting scenario. I hadn't thought about that, but that that's, could be a possibility, especially with these redistricting lawsuits. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, and we've talked about this before too, like just the, the notion that, um, you know, there's been this kind of populist upheaval within the Republican Party, in part because the Republicans keep losing. So if if we're always losing on policy, then people will eventually get tired of fighting for you. And so that's what happened is that Republicans were never pushing back on things. And so that's why other people took control. So so if you want to actually get other people who are who are other people within the Republican base. So you had your traditional establishment and then you had this populist, you know, starting with the Tea Party, but you know, you're more populist people like your Lauren Boeberts and your Marjorie Taylor Greens. Those people wouldn't be think uh, you know, they, they wouldn't have been thinkable within the Republican Party, you know, 15 years ago, in part because um people people just kind of said, you know, that that we're just going to take it. And and that's I think where Donald Trump was like, you know what? I'm just not going to take it and I'm going to I'm actually going to just do what I think needs to be done from a policy standpoint and and since since the left does not appreciate norms or democratic norms when it comes to um you know treating republicans with respect like it, it was very interesting to see just as an and, and Bill Maher has now even since then he's become I think even more reasonable but in 2016 uh Bill Maher apologized to John McCain and Mitt Romney and he said I need to apologize because those were good and honorable men, but I made them out to be evil 
and horrible people. And the media did not treat either of those men well. And the fruit and the result of that was Donald Trump. And I thought that was a very honest moment. And and the thing is, the media has not recognize what and Bill Maher is is so wise now and that's why he's he's getting a big following within a lot of conservative libertarians because he's not afraid to call out the extreme leftward tilt of the Democrat party um and I think I think they need to listen to him because it's a yin and a yang situation so I I think you know each party has to do their own work um but I do think from a, a media standpoint the fact that you have an overwhelmingly leftward ecosystem that really affects why you have again it's a yin and yang situation if 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 the liberal media and and the left were democrat the fact that bernie sanders an, an avowed socialist became a mainstream head of the budget committee that would be unthinkable too 15 years ago so it's this yin and yang thing so let's and and the thing is the leftward lurch started before trump so that's what i think is important well, again, I've I've been uh, singing Bill Maher's praises for many years because I think he's someone, and I try to do the same thing. Whatever your views are, you have to acknowledge the weakness of the other of your side, and you have to acknowledge the strength and the successes of the other side. And and I, you know, the few things that Trump did well, I, I give him credit for. But we have to remember, Donald Trump is the symptom. He's he was he's not the problem. Uh, you know, fortunately, he was so legislatively incompetent. The only thing he that he got passed was that disastrous tax cut. But but again, if you look at where the Republican Party has gone, and that's why this thing has gotten so messed up, because our founding fathers envisioned that you would have crazy presidents or presidents that would try to be undemocratic or authoritarian or whatever, which Trump is. I mean, this is a guy who sings the praises of every dictator in the world, right? He's about as democratic as, uh, you know, as Franco. But again, it's his party that was complicit, you know, and that's why I have a particular resentment towards towards Kevin McCarthy, because after January 6th, when every single Republican leader got up and acknowledged how responsible Trump was and the damage he'd done and how dangerous things were, Kevin McCarthy was the first one who went down to Mar-a-Lago and kissed the ring. This was the best off-ramp opportunity that the party had to get rid of Trump, just like Mitch McConnell he must wake up every day and say, why didn't I just get nine more senators? We could have convicted him. We could have said, let's hold hands. We'll do this together. We'll take a short-term hit, but we'll be done. The authoritarian wannabe will be gone. We can get our party back. But he wimped out. He didn't do it. So here we are. And the, you know, because of Biden's weakness, uh, there's a real chance that Donald Trump could become president again. And if that's the case, the country will never be the same again. And by the way, don't take my word for it. Just listen to him. He said he wants to terminate the Constitution. He said his administration is going to be all about revenge and retribution. So don't listen to me, folks. Listen to him. Well, I, I think going to what I said earlier, though, like right now with the shutdown, for example, like I agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Laura Boebert, like we should not be $33 trillion in debt. And yes, there was a big spend that happened because of COVID. Um, but before that- And the tax cut. Well, well, yeah, the tax cut was actually good. It was bringing more money into Treasury. So- Cost two to three trillion. The CBO said it cost two to three trillion. Incorrect. If Republicans, there was growth in the economy and the dynamic scoring wasn't included in those CBO projections. But the, um, the fact that uh, you have- 
again, policy losing all the time. That is why you have more extreme voices. But the thing is, on a policy level, I agree with them. Rhetorically, they go too far from my perspective. But until Republicans actually start having some policy wins, you're not going to motivate them to go in any other direction. And and so this is way bigger than Trump. It's not just about Trump. It's it's about the broader direction of, of the, the expanse of government. And that's that's part of why I think Vivek Ramaswamy has really caught on fire. Like he just did this big press conference at America First Policy Institute, where I used to work, um, talking about all these agencies that he's going to shut down. And he's a Harvard Law graduate. So he was looking at it from a constitutional standpoint. And what are the executive powers that are granted, that are granted by both the Constitution and then in the statute or the laws from the Congress. And he said, there's so much more leeway that that Republican presidents or whoever, anybody who wants to have a responsible government, that they're not taking advantage of and actually fulfilling in terms of reforming government, cutting the size of government, uh, making your government actually work for you instead of showing up, up at your door um, at the early hours like they did to this poor Catholic pro-life man and have the FBI knock on your door and, and then have the FBI alter emails in order to get a FISA warrant. Um, so there's all kinds of things that Vivek is catching fire because he's calling out the corruption of government. And and, and, heck, and heck, that's that was Ronald Reagan's famous phrase. I'm the most terrorizing language words, you know, where the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Like, it doesn't seem like Republicans have actually lived that in recent years. And that's why you you have these extremists in terms of the rhetoric coming because, you know, we gotta have to have some wins. Well, again, uh, excuse me for uh, finding all this uh, sudden austerity, slightly disingenuous. Yes, every Republican is so concerned about spending when a Democrat is in the White House. And again, I'm a guy that just looks at the facts. Fact, when did the deficit, government spending, and government employment go up during Republican administrations? When, when during the first Obama administration, you had the slowest growth in government spending since Eisenhower. During Clinton, with re Republican help, this is when people like Joe Scarborough and some guys that were in Congress that actually cared about balancing the budget were working. Yes, but Donald Trump was responsible for one quarter of our entire $32 trillion debt in four years. Okay, that's the same amount that Obama had in eight years, and Obama went through the financial crisis, okay? Uh, so that's problem number one. And problem number two is that these guys aren't serious about governing, okay? It's all about making statements. The reason that Vivek has caught on is not because he has any great policy ideas. I mean, he's a foreign policy ignoramus. Some of his stuff that he says about, you know, oh, I'm gonna not let anyone vote till they're 25, but I'm gonna get the young vote. I mean, it's just absurd, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. But the reason he's caught on is because he speaks beautiful MAGA. He says he throws exactly every piece of meat that the base wants to get. That's the reason he's caught on. That I mean, I have a better chance of getting elected in the general election than, than, than that guy does. But again, I encourage, it's good to have candidates out there. It's good to have people say, I encourage, I encourage people to run. But the bottom line is that people just don't take the Republican Party seriously because when there's a Republican in the White House, provocacy rules. Well, the one thing about Trump is that we had a one in a hundred year pandemic. So I don't think you can compare that yardstick. And again, I actually repeatedly, while I was a White House correspondent, I repeatedly asked the Treasury and White House officials, 
why are you spending so much? So I agree with you. The profligacy is, dub, you know, a, a bipartisan affair. That being said, though, with Trump and COVID, that was something that I mean, tr I, I personally think Trump should have pushed back more against the Anthony Fauci's and the shutdowns of the world. And that could have actually saved us a lot of money. So in that respect, I do I do fault Trump for that. That being said, again, it was a one in a hundred year event. So but overall, big, big picture, I do agree with you, too. It, it is a bipartisan problem. Um, and and but the, the Democrats, the, the difference, though, is the Democrats want to make it even worse. So just this week, you had Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania say that he wants to have 100 percent of children as soon as you're born, that you're automatically enrolled in Medicaid. Well, guess what? According to HHS, only 4% of children are uninsured right now. So instead of focusing on the 4% who are uninsured, he would then create a massive entitlement to push and incentivize and disincentivize 100% of children into a government program that would then saddle us with even more debt. So yes, I agree Republicans have been terrible, but Democrats are so much worse. And, and the only reason the deficit has been shrunk a little bit this time is because Joe Biden's budget and it's and yes, he did sign it, but like it was only he was forced by the House Republicans to sign a, a cut that he didn't want to sign because his original budget would have expanded the deficit even far more. Well, all I can say is in 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 about three years, even with all the spending that you talk about, Biden's added about four trillion dollars. Okay, so he is way behind Trump in terms of all the stuff, despite all this. Uh, runaway inflation causing spending that, that that you talk about and again these, these are the these are just the numbers I mean you can, you can just look it up this is not a, a question for debate but again the the issue is uh, this dynamic scoring you talk about with the tax cut any tax cut that has 81 percent going to the top one percent is not going to be very effective because for the simple reason if you allow people with a lot of money to keep more they spend some of it if you allow people with little or no money to keep more they spend all of it and you cut taxes when the economy is in trouble, not not when it's booming. That's why that this is probably the worst tax cut in terms of. And you talked about dynamic scoring. There was more job creation in the last three years of the Obama administration than there was in the first three years of the Trump administration. And you can look that one up, too, as Casey Stunko would say. So the, the facts just don't back up Trump's, Trump's, Trump's profligacy. And the average annual growth was also lower than it was during the Obama administration. So, so the, the statistics just, just don't bear that out. But again, as I've said, as a final word, all politicians love to spend money. The Democrats just admit it. So on that note, we will bid you adieu. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Practically Political. It's always great to have you. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we'll catch you next time.